Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, thank you for being such a powerful, mighty God, fully in control. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for being such a mighty, powerful God, fully in control. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being such a mighty, powerful God, fully in control. I pray that you would use your word now to please challenge, convict, guide, lead, and teach us more about Jesus Christ and help us to love our Savior more and be more confident in his power and strength because of our time in your word today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah. I guess you know you've been at a church for a while when you wear a suit and people say, so, wow, Rick, you must have had a funeral, huh? I did have a funeral, so that's why I was putting my suit away yesterday. I thought, hey, I don't get that thing out very often. I might as well wear that, plus it's supposed to be cold. But I thought, man, these people know me a little too well. That scares me slightly. But (laughs) maybe, just maybe, we have more of a fascination with pigs (laughs) than we may realize I'm not talking about eating them, though I'm a firm believer. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm a firm believer that everything tastes better with bacon on it. I'm just going to say that, throw that out there. But I'm talking about pigs themselves. How much we really talk about pigs, how much we seem to have a fascination for them. I was thinking of pig stories. Well, probably the most famous, of course, is the three little pigs. You guys know that. The, The mean bad wolf comes and Little pig, little pig, let me come in. Not by the hair of my chinny, chin, chin. (laughs) Then I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house in. And of course, there's, there's the famous story, Charlotte's Web, right? There's a pig named Wilbur, Wilbur, who his life is in jeopardy. Well, he is saved by a spider named Charlotte who spins these messages about the pig in her web, such things as some pig, uh, terrific, uh, radiant, and, and humble, and it saves Wilbur's life. Some years ago, there was a movie uh, entitled Babe, and it's about a pig who, who could herd sheep better than any trained sheepdog. I'm telling you, we love pigs. Uh, The Muppets, they have Miss Piggy. (laughs) Winnie the Pooh has Piglet. Uh, Looney Tunes, oh, they have Porky Pig, and that wasn't quite enough, so they also gave him a girlfriend, Petunia Pig. We like pigs. In fact, we even wiggle the toes of our babies and talk about pigs, don't we? We do right? I mean, this little piggy went to market, and on and on it goes until we finally get to the little toe, and you know, this little piggy went wee, 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 all the way home. Don't we do that? We evidently like pigs more than we are willing to admit. Now, in case you haven't figured it out, (laughs) we're going to talk about pigs today. It's actually in our passage here, but, but the thing about it is I need to warn you at the beginning, Pigs are not really the main point of this passage. This is actually, the more I study, this is actually a passage, a story of contrast 
First, it's a contrast from what we saw last week at the end of chapter 4, because then, if you remember when that, that horrifying boat ride, then it was night. Well, now it's morning. Then they were on the water. Now they are on land. Then they were in the middle of a storm. Now it is calm as Jesus and his disciples come to the shore. But there's also several contrasts within the passage itself, and I want this morning to focus on three of them. Contrast number one is this, a possessed man contrasted with a peaceful man. I hope you're with me in Mark chapter 5. I'm going to start reading right in verse 1 and have you just follow along as I do that. They, of course, this is Jesus and his disciples after that terrible storm, they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Now, exactly where Jesus and his disciples made sure, we aren't really sure where it talks about with the, the country of the Gerasenes. Most scholars believe, you can see on the map there, to the, just on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, yeah, there's probably that area of Gergesa is where they landed. And there's a couple different reasons for that. Now, before I mention that, though, I want to just mentioned too that that area you can see on the map it's it's kind of dark a different shade it's it's a gentile region i think that's important to remember but part of the reasons that uh, we aren't really sure is because there's discrepancies there's differences in some of the manuscripts as to exactly where they landed but this this area of gergesa is often considered probably where they landed. Part of the reason for that is because of the shoreline. The shoreline rises very steeply there, as you'll see in a moment is, is important in the story. Also, up in those hills that you see there, up at the top of it, they have found ancient tombs, again, which are really, I think, important to the story here. And so this is generally believed to be the area that they landed that day there. And the events now that we will talk about here. I want to mention something too. Matthew tells us in his account of the story that there were actually two men who were possessed by demons, but, but both Mark and Luke, what they do is they choose to focus on the one who had the worst case. And so it's not a difference here. It's just Mark and Luke are just talking about this specific individual. And I have to tell you, I can't even begin to imagine how horrific, how terrible his life must have been. And and even as we read those verses, I I don't know if you noticed or not, but it it almost seems like there's this back and forth. There's this, sometimes it seems like this man is in control of himself, and other times it's very clear that the demons were in control. Night and day he was tormented by these hideous creatures from hell. And understandably, he was feared by the people. 
He was abandoned by the people because they had tried to shackle him, and even then the demons would give him the strength to break those apart. Some of the people who had, were fearful of him were certainly people who had been close to him, probably family members, probably friends. But he was alone. None of them could be by him because of the horrific situation and the condition he had. You know, as I read this, a lot of questions come to my mind. I don't know as you read through this, but for example, why did he run up to Jesus? Was it him? Was it the man in control wanting to be free from his captors? Is that why when he saw Jesus, he went running towards him? Or was it the demons and their involuntary submission to Jesus that made him do so? Honestly, we don't, we don't know. But we do know that a man who couldn't even be restricted by chains and shackles ran towards the Son of God and fell down before him. When I read that, I, I, my mind just automatically goes to Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But contrast that man that possessed, deranged, frightening, blood-stained man with what he was like after his encounter with Jesus. Just skip down to verse 15 with me. And they, that's the townspeople, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. That, my friends, is the power of Jesus Christ to change a life. This man who was possessed, out of control, now a man who was calmly sitting there with Jesus. Second contrast I want us to see this morning is many hate-filled, destructive demons contrasted with a compassionate, powerful Savior. Let's pick up our story again, verse 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, this is Jesus, saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. I want you to notice a couple things. First of all, notice that the demons knew exactly who Jesus was. We saw that earlier. We saw that back in chapter 1 when we looked at the the episode where Jesus had cast a demon out of a man in a synagogue. And and if you remember, we talked about here that it was a common belief 
that by naming someone, you would have control over them. And so the demons evidently felt that by naming Jesus, that would give them some influence or power over him, (laughs) which was a big fat failure on their part. Not at all. Instead, it was Jesus who forced them to give him their name. And of course, their answer, my name is Legion. Now, a legion was the largest unit of the Roman army, and at full strength, a legion could actually have 6,000 soldiers. Now, I want to be clear, that doesn't mean that there were necessarily 6,000 demons in the man, but it certainly means that there were a great number of demons within that man. Demons are they're servants of Satan. And just like their evil master, they hate humans because we are made in the image of God. I want you to notice there, again, the destructive control that they had over this man. Let me just go back to verse 5 with you for a moment. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. We see this throughout the Gospels. Often demons would try to hurt the person or the people that they were possessing, or they would sometimes even force the person to try to hurt themselves. They hate people. They try to destroy people because we have been made in the image of God. Contrast now those demons with one person. Contrast them with Jesus. The one who has marked 1045, which we said is kind of a key verse for this whole book of Mark, says that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I want you also to notice, again, the power of Jesus. The same power that just hours earlier had spoken a storm into absolute stillness, as we saw last week, now spoke a multitude of demons into absolute submission. In verses 10 and 12, both, we saw there that they were begging Jesus because they were powerless before him. And I think that's so important to understand. Now, I talked about questions, right? I've always wondered why they begged to be sent into the pigs. Is that any guys ever wondered about that? Okay, two of us. So, okay, that's all right. So the rest of you guys are, are list way ahead of me. You, you know more than that. So that's good. But I've wondered about that. So I studied this out, and there, there are a few different things uh, at play here. First of all, well, Luke 8 tells us, in his account of this, tells us that they didn't want to be sent prematurely into the abyss. So that's the, the, the bottomless pit that they are destined for after Christ's return, which is, which is mentioned in Revelation chapter 20. So, so I guess in the demons' minds, they figured that pigs were better than the abyss. Okay. Secondly, since the demons could not destroy the man, they, tried, they hurt him, but since they could not destroy the man, they wanted to destroy the pigs. Again, I think that for them, something was better than nothing. For those wicked creatures. Couldn't destroy the man, so let's try to destroy something. Thirdly, John Calvin in his commentary points this out. I think it's such a brilliant point. 
He says that they most certainly had another intention, which was, let me quote here, to excite the inhabitants of that country to curse God on account of the loss of the swine. They felt that they could use that to turn the people against Jesus. And in that pursuit, as we'll see in a few moments, they were successful. But my real question through this, every time I've read this through the years, my real question has always been, why did Jesus grant the demons permission to do what they requested? I would have been like, I'm sorry, you're a demon. You want to do that? Ha, not a chance. Not a chance. You cannot. You have to do exact opposite of what you want. That's what I would have done. But Jesus granted them permission. I'm not going to ask you guys if I've ever wondered about that because either you guys, again, know a whole lot more about this than I ever did or you guys just don't want to raise your hands today. But I have had questions about that. This always, always puzzled me. Well, I think that there are at least four reasons why Jesus granted them permission. A, it showed that there was indeed a great number of demons possessing the man. I mean, it's one thing that they said their name was Legion. Now, I have to tell you, I have no idea how many pigs one demon can possess or influence, but 2,000 pigs makes it very clear that there was indeed a plethora of demons. It showed, I think part of the reason Jesus did this is it showed again that there was indeed a great number. Secondly, it showed the destructive nature of the demons. Now, some read into the story when they try to say that it was grossly unfair of Jesus to let these pigs be destroyed. No! He did not destroy the pigs. You see that? He allowed them to go into the pigs. He did not destroy the pigs. Don't try to blame Jesus for that. It was the demons who did that. Since they could not destroy the man, they destroyed the only thing that they could destroy. That was another part of God's creation. They destroyed the pigs. Make sure they get the blame. They're the ones who are destructive. Third, It was a visible witness to the authority and the power of Jesus. When he commanded them to come out of the man, they had no choice but to do so. And they could only go where Jesus allowed them to. Compared to the humans, excuse me, compared to humans, the demons had great power, right? They had controlled this man, had abused this man. They had great power compared to humans. But I love this, because compared to Jesus, they had no power at all. The fourth reason I think that Jesus allowed that is Jesus valued the life of one man much more than the lives of 2,000 pigs. I think that says so much about our Savior. Uh, The Pillar New Testament commentary says it so well. Let me read this to you. It says, In the eyes of Jesus, the rescue and restoration of one person is more important than vast capital assets. Compared to the redemption of a human being, the loss of swine herds, considerable though it is, does not rate mentioning. I love that. 
I love the fact that our Savior considers the soul of every one of us to be of infinitely greater value than any earthly thing or possession. And so to save the soul of this man, Jesus did not hesitate to permit the demons to enter into the pigs. I think that says so much about our Savior. Third contrast that I want us to see this morning, though, is a crowd begging Jesus to leave contrasted with a man begging Jesus to let him go with him. Let me pick up reading in verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. How sad. How sad is it that these people turned away the Savior of the world, the one before whom the demons had to bow and obey. And instead of worshiping him, instead of pleading with him to stay and to teach them and to save them, they begged him to leave. And I think the great magnitude of that is seen when we consider that this was not just a rash decision with a short-term result. Because for many of these people, it was a choice of eternal consequence. They rejected the only one who could save them. Contrast that foolish crowd, that crowd that you almost have to feel really sorry for, but contrast them with the one whose life had been transformed from darkness and demonic control to light and to salvation. He begged Jesus also, but he begged Jesus to let him go with him. Look at verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, this is Jesus, of course, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he, Jesus, did not permit him. I think it's interesting that Jesus obliged the begging crowd while denying the begging convert. It almost doesn't seem fair, does it? They begged him to leave, and Jesus like, okay. This man begged Jesus to go with him, and Jesus said, no. But the more I studied this, I realized this is not Jesus being unfair in the least. This is actually showing Jesus' love and compassion. Because at first, it can seem unfair to this former demoniac. But in reality, Jesus was showing his love for all of those people who had just rejected him and asked him and begged him to leave. You see, by telling this man to stay and testify, by, testify about what Jesus had done, Jesus was refusing to leave those people in their desperate state of unbelief without leaving them a witness. That's why Jesus made that man stay, even though he begged to go. Look at verse 19 again. 
And he did not permit him, but said to him, (laughs) go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Jesus wasn't rejecting him by refusing to let him come along. Jesus was giving him an assignment and a purpose. This man, who just a short time before was crying out in agony and pain and torment, was now able to cry out to all who would hear, to his family and to his friends, to cry out about the miraculous, life-changing Jesus. This was an incredible thing. In fact, as I study this, James Brooks in the New American Commentary, he, he points out something that, honestly, I'd never even considered it before, but the more I thought about it, I thought, this is brilliant. This is remarkable what Jesus was doing. Look at verse 20. <clears throat> and Jesus, and he went away and began, no, excuse me, I said the wrong thing. And he, this man, went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Talked about at the beginning, the Decapolis. That was a Gentile region. So, as James Brooks mentions here, and again, I just thought this was so incredible, this man became the first missionary to the Gentiles. He was the first one to be able to tell these people about Jesus He was the first one to be able to tell them about the Savior of the world who had come. I love this. And the more I read this and studied it, this was not mean or unfair of Jesus to make this man stay. It was an incredible act of love, not only to the man to give him purpose, but it was an incredible act of love to all of the people who had just asked and begged Jesus to leave. He left them physically, but he gave them a witness to Talk about him. (laughs) What a great Savior we have. So this aimless, tortured existence for this man, it became now a life of purpose and service to his Savior. And that's the power of Jesus to change a life from darkness to light. Because truly, like I said, this is so much more than just another pig, pig story. This is actually a story of rejection or acceptance. Some years ago, a pastor named Joseph H. Odell, he wrote a poem based on this very passage that we've been studying. Let me just read this to you. Christ stands without your door and gently knocks. But if your gold or swine, the entrance blocks. He forces no man's hold. He will depart and leave you to the treasures of your heart. No cumbered chamber will the master share, but one swept bare by cleansing fires, then plenished fresh and fair with meekness and humility and prayer. There he will come, yet coming even there, He stands and waits and will no entrance win until the latch be lifted from within. So let me ask you, have you opened 
the latch of your heart to him. If not, I beg of you, do it now. Do it this very morning. Jesus will not force anyone to accept him as Lord and Savior. But if you ask him to, he will gladly save you from your sins. He will gladly save you from that life of darkness and bring you into his glorious life and light. He brought that man from spiritual bondage to spiritual life. He will do exactly the same thing for any of us who ask him to save us. This story, this story of contrast, it's a contrast between those who reject and those who accept. I can't think of anything more serious that we could ever wrestle with in our hearts than have we accepted or do we reject Jesus Christ? Because I tell you, salvation comes only through him. This man who loved this demoniac enough to save him, this man who loved the people that rejected him and begged him to leave enough to keep this demoniac there with them to tell about him. This man is Jesus Christ. And he, and he alone, can save us from our sins. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. You demonstrate your power, but you demonstrate your love and your compassion. And help us just because of our familiarity with you and the Bible and the stories, help us to never lose sight of the reality that you have come to save us from our sins. That is why you came. And Lord, oh, I pray for all of us who are believers in you. Strengthen our faith. Help us to be thrilled with the reality that you are such a powerful God and that you have indeed taken us from the bondage of sin and darkness, and you have brought us into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God. Oh, but Jesus, if there is even one here now who has never made that decision, oh, I pray that you would stir their hearts. I pray that you would help them understand the importance of the decision. And God, in the silence of this moment, let their hearts cry out to you, Jesus, I believe in you. Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins. Jesus, I believe that you will forgive me for my sins. And so I ask you now, Jesus, save me. Lord, if anyone made that decision, oh, I pray that you would confirm the truth of that in their hearts. Understanding that salvation, it's not on us. It's not dependent on how good we have been or how much we know. It is dependent on our Savior who has done it all. So God, help us to love you now in Jesus' name. Amen.